Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and welcome to Phenomenon Radio, the show that covers thought-provoking breakthroughs in the fields of UAP UFOs to discover fascinating truths first-hand accounts, and investigative insights into the expanding confluence of physical and mental exposure to this worldwide phenomenon. Hosted by world-renowned experiencer of the 1980 Rendlesham Bentwaters UFO incident, John Burroughs, and Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist, Linda Moulton Howe. And now, leading off the program, here's Linda Moulton Howe. Recently, John Burroughs sent me a link to a document on the Central Intelligence Agency website that is entitled, quote, Approved for Release August 8, 2000 by CIA Remote Viewing Session Data, close quote. The title page lists the remote viewer as LB. The actual site target is listed as Rendlesham Forest Incident. The date of the remote viewing session was July 14th, 1986. That's only six years after the phenomena in Rendlesham Forest. So I downloaded the 13 pages and I called Lynn Buchanan, who I confirmed was the LB remote viewer in the CIA release document. Lynn is now retired in Alamogordo, New Mexico, where he is executive director of Problem Solutions Innovations and manages the controlled remote viewing website, crviewer.com, about accessing information across time and space. As Lynn explained to me what his words and sketches meant in his 1986 remote viewing session, on one page marked six, the last notation at the far bottom right are the letters E period, T period, S, ETs. The next page should have been seven, but it is missing. Lynn was surprised when he saw that the next page skipped to eight. In this Phenomenon Radio broadcast tonight, you are going to hear Lynn Buchanan go through the 13 pages from the CIA website and his insights about his remote viewing and the ET presence on this planet and beyond. And you can follow along by going to my news website, earthfiles.com, where I have included the 13 pages in my September 17th, 2015 report, Remote Viewer Lynn Buchanan Encounters ETs at Rendlesham Forest Incident. And now some background. 
Leonard Lynn Buchanan was born in Waco, Texas on July 28, 1939. He graduated from Sam Houston High School in Houston and joined the U.S. Army in 1957. Lynn was eventually stationed at the McGregor Ranges north of El Paso, Texas, where he worked as a technician in the Nike Ajax and Nike Hercules Guided Missiles Program. After three years, Lynn Buchanan left the Army to work for IBM briefly before going to college to earn a master's degree in foreign languages. And then Lynn returned to the U.S. Army in 1962 to be a Russian, German, and Mongolian linguist. Later on, in 1984, Lynn was contacted by the Defense Intelligence Agency's General Albert Stubblebine then in charge of all military intelligence gathering for the Army's Defense Intelligence Agency. General Stubblebine asked Lynn to join a DIA unit called, all caps, DTS, based in an old condemned World War II mess hall at Fort Meade, Maryland, that was quite separated from the large, shiny National Security Agency complex, There, half a dozen talented men were testing their minds' abilities to access details about targets anywhere on Earth. The DT-S Army Unit had been established in 1978 at Fort Meade by the DIA and SRI International, once known as the Stanford Research Institute in Palo Alto, California. The DTS's first goal was to research the potential to use psychic abilities to spy. That's when the information from DTS was categorized Secret Level 6 Special Access Project Code Word Gondola Wish. And that was 1978. By the time that Lynn Buchanan took General Stubblebine's offer and joined the Army Defense Intelligence Agency's DTS, the code word had changed to Stargate, and remote viewing had become operational to provide the DIA with intelligence collection. That meant controlled remote viewing was considered valuable enough by then to use in spy efforts. After working in the DTS unit, Project Stargate, for two and a half years, one day on July 14, 1986, one of Lynn's assigned practice targets was Rendlesham Forest incident at RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge that had occurred six years before on December 26 to 28, 1980. At that time, Lynn did not know anything about the black, glassy surface triangular craft that Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston sketched in his notebook in the early morning of December 26, 1980. That's when Sergeant Penniston, Airman First Class John Burroughs, and Airman Ed Kavansack were following red, blue, orange, and white lights in Rendlesham Forest trying to figure out what they were. At one point, Penniston and Burroughs were overcome by a flash of bright white light. Penniston remembered sketching a black triangle about nine feet long on each side with a raised center about six and a half feet high. The black triangle seemed suspended above ground by glowing light. Sergeant Penniston dragged his fingers along the smooth, shiny surface of the black triangle 
until his fingers touched Ray's symbols at the front of the triangle's point. That's when Peniston received binary code and telepathic communication that this craft was from time travelers far in the future with a serious genetic problem. Their civilization faced extinction. Going back in time to Earth was their emergency mission to harvest fresh genetic material to use as, quote, band-aids, close quote, to stay alive in that far future. So Lynn's controlled remote viewing of the Rendlesham Forest incident on July 14th 1986 was 24 years before Sergeant Peniston first publicly discussed details of his telepathic download with binary code back in 2010. Here now are some recorded excerpts from my recent discussion with Lynn about the meaning of the CIA release pages from his remote viewing the Rendlesham Forest Incident. It's smooth feeling, it's rising, it's going up, and it's curving. And I mentally ran my hand across it, and I got a squeak sound, and I wrote AOL, which is analytic overlay, like greaseless skin on a banister, if you've ever heard that sound, as you go down steps and you have your hand squeaking on the banister. Anyway, on the next page is a sketch. This is a stage three sketch. In stage three, you don't just describe. You sketch what you're seeing and then can feel around this and get impressions of what you have drawn. I have black on the outside. That's where the black, round, shiny part is. And then right below black, I have cutaway view to the inside, I just sort of cut away the top of this black shiny thing and looked down inside. What I saw was that it was red and had red indirect lighting and is smooth, rising, hard, man-made. Why man-made? Oh, man-made was our slang for being manufactured. And so you have natural and man-made, but the man-made doesn't mean human or man, like if you have an ant pile. The dirt is natural, but the ant pile and the ant hole is manufactured by the ants, and so we would just say man-made. And so whatever this thing was, I knew that it was manufactured. It was not something natural. I'm no longer in that area that has the dim red lighting. I'm now in yellowish lighting that's very dim and it's dull. And I'm in a curved place that's empty. And I realize that I'm in a passage now. I'm inside this thing. It's dark. It's noisy. It's empty. So I got that the driver of this vehicle is not in the vehicle. He's somewhere else. Like this object that you are remote viewing in Rendlesham Forest could be a drone that is not manned, but that the intelligence associated with this is somewhere else. Yeah, that's what I mean. And that's when I got AOL break. Oh, I'm viewing ETs. So move me back to the place with the yellow light. That's when I got an incubator. I definitely realized that this young 
person, whatever, was in the place of the yellow light and that it was an incubator. After this short break, Lynn Buchanan will join us to go through the CIA release 13 pages of his July 14, 1986, controlled remote viewing of the Rendlesham Forest incident. And you can follow along with each page at my news website, earthfiles.com, in today's September 17th report, remote viewer Lynn Buchanan encounters ETs at Rendlesham Forest incident. You're listening to Phenomenon Radio Live with Bentwater's experiencer John Burroughs and Emmy, award-winning investigative journalist and Earth Files reporter and editor Linda Moulton Howe. Tonight's special guest, control remote viewer Lynn Buchanan, will join the show right after these messages. Stay with us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Find the podcast on Spotify, iHeart, Audible, and Apple Podcast. Get the best on the X. Thanks for joining us tonight on Phenomenon Radio for tonight's interview with very special guest, Control Remote Viewer Lynn Buchanan. To start tonight's interview, here's Linda Moulton Howe. Lynn, before we get into the details of your controlled remote viewing of Rendlesham Forest and the incident there, could you please tell us how you came to meet Army General Albert Stubblebein, who was in charge of all military intelligence gathering for the Army's Defense Intelligence Agency in 1984, I believe it was, and he who hired you to work for DIA's Stargate program. How did all of that happen? Yeah, I I had to smile when you said he invited me. When a general invites a sergeant, <laughs> it's uh, it you don't take it as an invitation. Um, <laughs> you know how they always report that uh, emotionally disturbed children have the ability to uh, be poltergeist kids right. and do the PK. It's the emotionally disturbed ones that get you know all the credit. <laughs> But actually, a lot of children uh, right at that age, 
experience these things, whether they're emotionally disturbed or not, but we tend to teach our kids to ignore these things and not do them. But anyway, <clears throat> I've always been of a very curious state of mind, and when it started happening to me, I wanted to find out how to do it, and so I started developing it, and then um, had a uh, bad experience. I was showing off to uh, the cute little redheaded girl, and uh, my life parallels Charlie Brown's in many ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, she went home and told her father, the Pentecostal minister. <laughs> and uh, the next day, he met me on the sidewalk, asked for a demonstration. And when I gave it, he and three of his deacons just slammed me down to the sidewalk and started praying for Satan to come out of me. Well, it just scared me half to death. I had never considered that it might be sinful in any way, you know. And, and the it, Lynn, the it that you are describing, <clears throat> that has to do with when you were in Europe and you were in Germany as a grown person, what happened that this PK ability or uh, this Im impact that you had <clears throat> on being able to move things affected yeah. something in Germany? Let's go to Germany because okay. that's what caught General Stubblebine's attention. Yeah, and um, I had... Uh suppressed this ability that I had, that I had developed for all those years. Um, I was uh, selected to do a computer program that would tie together the computers of 12 different countries, uh, the security computers and the intelligence gathering computers of 12 different countries so that the 12 countries could share intelligence. It was a massive, massive program that had to work on French computers and German computers and, and all that, and um, and mainframes and everything else. Well, there was another sergeant who wanted to be selected for it, but I got selected instead. So uh, the day came that I was to give my demonstration of the program, and we had all these generals and, you know, many-starred generals and, and all that from 12 different countries uh, in the room, and I did my little song and dance and hit the button to start the demonstration, and the computer gave the blue screen of death, you know, just uh, uh, error, 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 and everybody was chuckling, and I turned around, and there was the other sergeant at the door. He pointed at me and said, gotcha and turned around and walked out. I got so flaming mad that, you know, I, I'm glad I couldn't get my hands on it. I'd be in jail now. But um, I turned around to the computer, and I heard the little voice that I had developed just say, die. Well, about $5 million worth of computers later, um, uh, General Stubblebine came out to the unit, and if you've seen the men who stare at goats, it's depicted accurately in there. He came out to Germany, where I was, and um, called me into the uh, uh, commander's office. And I was standing at attention, and he got right up in my face with a scowl on his face, and he said, Did you kill my computers with your mind? And 
I knew that my great grandkids would still be paying for computers and I was going to lie about it, but I, I just sort of heard myself say, yes, sir, I did. And this uh, grin came across his face and he said, far effing out, have I ever got a job for you? Well, he took me back to Washington, D.C. and um, he wanted to start a unit where we would mentally destroy enemy computers and uh, with the with the long-term intention of being able to control the data in them instead so that like if they fired a missile at us we could drop it into the sea or make it turn around and go back at them uh, the enemy being them and um, Congress said that smites of mind control so no well, there was in D.C. He had already pulled me out of Germany and uh, basically had nothing to do with me. And so he took me out to Fort Meade to the remote viewing unit. They read me on, which is a process of uh, you read this paper that tells what they do and then you sign your life away if you ever divulge any of it, you know. And um, I thought the military doesn't do this, you know. And um, so anyway, um, I was there in the unit all of a sudden. And, um, and so I started watching them work. And I was just amazed that they could get such highly accurate information by just sitting down at a table and, and writing things down on paper. And uh, it intrigued me. I wanted to learn how to do it. And so I went ahead and learned the controlled remote viewing and just took to it like a duck to water. And um, within three years, I was the trainer of the unit for new incoming people. Um, I was in there for eight and a half years. And uh, then when I retired from service, that's when I got out of the unit. Well, let's go to the day of... July 14th, 1986, and you have been tasked, like for an exercise, like a practice exercise, yeah, and yeah. let's go to page one, the cover page, and explain to people in a sort of rapid way, starting in the upper right corner, what the information is as you come down the page, and let's go through these pages unfolding what you remember doing as a remote viewer when you had no idea what your target was. And it is only later that the uh, Rendlesham Forest incident was handwritten on the cover sheet long after the session was done. Yeah, uh, let me just preface that by saying that in a controlled remote viewing situation, they don't tell you what the target is because if they did, your logic would kick in and your imagination would kick in and all that. So they just give you numbers and we'll get to that in a minute. Remote viewer is LB. That's me. The interviewer was ED. Um, there were no observers. And ED is Ed Dames. Ed Dames, right. Uh -huh. um, the uh, date was the 14th of July, 1986. The starting time was... 1409, which is military for 
09 in the afternoon. East Coast. Uh, I'm sorry? East Coast. Uh, East Coast, yes, we were at Fort Meade, right. Uh, um, the site number, uh, we had a um, uh, safe that was full of practice targets. And so that was envelope number 0178. And uh, so that just identified if somebody wanted to go look it up in the safe, they would know where to find it. Site acquisition was controlled remote viewing, CRV. And uh, CRV was done over in another building. Um, and in that building, we had a room that had been painted gray. Everything was gray in it except the light bulbs. Uh, the table was gray. The floor was gray. The walls, the windows, everything had been painted gray. And so we just, by slang, call that the gray table room. And uh, so gray table is uh, uh, telling where I worked the session. Feedback class is B. And B is that right after the session, they will give you the feedback that they have for the site. Um, so you get immediate feedback for your practice sessions. And it was just an article out of a magazine, uh, something about Rendlesham Forest. I, I don't even really remember it. Anyway, uh, when it started, Ed, uh, in order to hide the target, Ed uh, just ginned up some numbers, some numbers, and he wrote that uh, he said the numbers to me, and as he did, I wrote them down. Now the purpose for that is, first of all, identifying the target. Uh, it has no relationship to anything about the target, where it is, or anything else. Uh, even though these are called coordinates, they're just random numbers. And those are the one three six six four nine two one five two one six. That's right. And um, the main purpose of that for the session is to get your pen moving, because if you just try to do it from a dead stop, it's very hard to get started. So this way, you write the numbers down, your pen is moving, and you just keep going. Uh, the ending time on this was three thirty one in the afternoon. Uh, terminal session simply means that I was not going to be uh, retasked on any information I provided in here in this session. And uh, so there was not going to be a follow-on session detailing anything I got in this session. Uh, S5 and S6, those are stages. There were seven stages in the remote viewing, in the controlled remote viewing process. And this one just went up to stage six. Um, highest stage, stage six, S6. Uh, evaluation, I got a plus, which meant that um, the information that I got was considered to be correct according to the information that they had. Uh, the actual site, Rendlesham Rindum, Forest Incident, um, and... Uh, so that's the cover page. Now, this was all done after the session was over, and it was done by someone else, and usually. And uh, and so this is just a data sheet that we would put 
would staple to the front of each session transcript and file it away in the safe. And so when you now turn to page two, that has a black rectangle at the upper right, that is covering up? My name. Okay. And yep. then underneath that is the date, July 14th, 1986, for Mead. And that has Ed Dame's note that he made that. Now start and explain. No, uh, Ed, Ed is, um, I did all of that, and Ed is saying that Ed was my monitor. Okay. Now, when you jump over to those numbers that we saw on the cover page with that scribbled line, this is where you're actually starting. And if you could now talk about the words as they are coming down the page and why it is important for remote viewers to be moving vertically down pages. Okay, uh, going down, let me get the PI and no. That's physical inclemencies, like do you have a cold, do you have to go to the bathroom, you know, are you sick today, or whatever. AV is advanced visuals, have you gotten any hunches from anybody what this target may be? And so I had no physical inclemencies, and I didn't have any advanced visuals, any suspicions of what it would be. So uh, Ed gave me the numbers, I wrote them down. And from that last digit, my pen was already moving, and I did what's called an ideogram. Now, this ideogram um, comes from the fact that your subconscious can't talk to your conscious mind, but it can talk to the body. And so leading up to actually doing remote viewing work, we would have hours and hours of time when... um, the monitor would sit over across the table and say, water, land, space, man-made, natural. And you would make a graphic representation of each one of those. And you would do that until it became, you would practice that until it became so second nature that um, anytime they said water, you'd make waves. Uh, anytime they said land, you'd make a line, line straight across and so on. Um, and, uh, then they take you into the beginning things like they'll get a, um, a picture out of national geographic of the open ocean and they'll say, okay, instead of saying the words and have you do the ideogram, they'll say target one for the day and your hand goes wave you know wavy line they open the envelope and they show you that it's the ocean and um, you have to be able to get 25 of those correct in a row with no mistakes uh, before they will let you actually start doing sessions and so Lynn, right after your ideogram you have uh, starting with words can you start with your words and go down the page yeah uh I would do the ideogram, I would go back and touch it and feel it, I would give the shape of it, it's a cross, it goes across, I would feel it and it felt smooth, it felt rising up and um, uh, curving, and now this is the ideogram that's not the target. This describes the ideogram, not the target. B 
was straight line. I didn't know what the target, I didn't know what this ideogram was. Uh, it was a strange ideogram to me. Uh, AI break. I have an override feeling uh, that the target is very smooth feel into this whole thing. So Ed said, okay, let's take the coordinates again, took the numbers again, did another ideogram, and this ideogram is rising, smooth, uh, some word that I haven't figured out yet, uh, irregular, and man-made. Man-made meaning manufactured. Then I said, oh, okay, B, that's my ideogram for an object. And then Ed said, okay, describe the object. So that's when we go into stage two and start describing things. So I said, the object is smooth, it's round, it's black, it's shiny. It's uh, uh, smooth again, it's hard. And that's when I rubbed my hand across it. And I said, there's this squeak sound when you rub your hand across it, uh, AOL break is an explanation of what I'm of what I'm trying to say. Uh, like dry greaseless skin on a banister when you're going down steps. Okay. That was the type of squeak that I got when uh, when I rubbed my hand across it. And then when you go into the next page, you're actually beginning to penetrate into this. Do you have any idea what the relationship of that strange squeak is to this next page in the drawing of it? Uh, no, and this is this is one of the things that um, uh, a lot of people don't understand. Uh, as a trained intelligence agent, you report what you get. You don't report what you make of it. Uh, an analyst will do that. Uh, you, you have a ground spy, a ground agent. He will go and he will report exactly what he sees, but he won't tell, like, he'll see a factory, okay? And he'll tell you what was being manufactured there. He'll tell you everything about the factory, but he won't say why. He won't He won't come to any suppositions or anything like that. And as remote viewers, we did the same. So and what so, are you doing in this drawing? What what happened there? Okay. In this drawing, uh, I was on the outside, and I ran my hand across it, and I got that it was black, and uh, that, um, you know, it was black and smooth and all that. And then I have a, a thing that I like to do as a remote viewer. If I'm on the outside of something, I'll just make a cutaway hole in it and look inside. And so cutaway view to the inside, this is a normal thing that I do when I'm outside of a building or anything like that. Um, thick black walls. And then I saw that inside there was red indirect lighting. And uh, that is on the next page. Uh, by the way, on the sketches, we didn't number the pages. And so now I'm on page two of my reporting. Right. And I've got it marked as page four in the sequence at Earth Files on the website. That's and, right. Yeah. Uh -huh. And that those 
are uh, different columns now. You're moving into columns where you have to be strict about what it is that you are getting in these impressions uh, moving toward uh, trying to uh, get more information now about this object, which is black and smooth. And, um, of course, all of us who have seen the sketch that Jim Penniston did of what he saw in Rendlesham Forest you automatically begin to think about both of them at the same time. But you were doing this 24 years before Jim ever was talking about a lot of this publicly. Yeah, and I had never heard of Rendlesham Forest incident before before doing this session. So uh, even when they told me this was the Rendlesham Forest incident, I thought, well, it must be, you know. Hey, Lynn, I've got a question for you. Yeah. I'm sorry to butt in. It was never called the Rendlesham Forest Incident way back then. Was it first called Bentwaters, or were they calling it the Rendlesham Forest Incident from the very beginning? Uh, in 86, they they wrote uh, actual site, Rendlesham Forest Incident. Okay. Uh, and like I say, at that time, I had never heard of the Rendlesham Forest Incident. So well, No, and it really makes sense because at that time, it wasn't really public, number one. And number two, when it did become public, it was known as the Bentwaters incident, not the Rendlesham Forest incident. It didn't really change over to that till about 30 years in. So yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to clarify that. Thank you. No, that's yeah. that's good. And that emphasizes that we are on a timeline here where you were doing this in 1986 for the Defense Intelligence Agency in a remote viewing program that none of yeah. us knew about. And n- that all of these details that came out in your remote view, they resonate with what Jim Penniston began to talk about so many years later. And yes, I wonder... But, but he's saying, how did they know the the term Rendlesham Forest incident uh, back then when it what, didn't come out later? Uh, let me just say that... Uh, let me repeat your words. It didn't come out to the public <laughs> right. Now, I wonder, because there's so much uh, to get through, can we go to your page four, where you have another very interesting sketch and keep on going into details from there, from page four? Uh, four. Okay, this sketch. Yeah. Uh, at... That gets us to A, which is quite yeah. fascinating. Uh, a little bit after this, um, on the intervening pages, Ed told me going into the you know going into the uh, interior, and so I went in. I found myself in this corridor, and I found that um, the place seemed huge to me, and yet I was too tall for this corridor. And uh, and it was a, sort of a conflict. It seemed too huge, but I was too tall. Anyway, I followed this corridor along, and down at the end of the corridor, there was a thing that I noticed, and at that point, I just labeled it A. Now, these sketches are also ideograms. You can touch these and get information off of them in a controlled remote viewing situation. So moving on to the next page, um, Ed cued me with A, describe what's at A. And so I said, it's gray, it's hard, 
it's dark. Um, AOL break, meaning I'm perceiving that this is a metal door. Now, these headings up here of the columns, the T is for things. When you're absolutely sure it's a thing, you put it in the things column. If you're pretty sure, you put it in the AOL column. So I'm pretty sure this is some kind of a metal door. And then another AO break, AOL break, I feel like I'm in an underground uh, workplace. And then Ed said, okay, again, go back to the A point. And, you know, I was in the hallway. I feel like I'm in an underground workplace. Um, I had an underground feeling to it. Um, he said, okay, go back to the A and describe. And I got, it was dark, it was gray, it was black. There was some kind of noise uh, that was just constant noisy. And um, that this A was closed and it was at the end of the corridor. And when you go to the next page. Oh, uh, okay. There's a, um, okay. You want me to go to the next page? Yes. This is, goes to six. Okay. Work your way down there to that lower right corner. Okay. Uh, Ed said, okay, describe the object's interior. And I said, it's dark, it's noisy, it's empty. AI break. <clears throat> AI is when you're suddenly at, feel like you're at the target. And in many cases, you can't, you can't even see the room around you. You only see the target. And uh, it's a it's a very intense thing that can happen during a CRV session. And uh, this is where I said, I'm too high. There are no people. Um, and uh, then Ed uh, cued me with drive. Uh, oh, owners. That's owners, isn't it? Yes, that's owners. Um, okay. And. EI column is what someone else would feel if they were at the site. So I'm saying that the owners would have a hard fear. They would be unconcerned and that there would just be busyness. Um, you know, busyness just moving around and all that. Um, Ed cued me, described the location. Uh, I said, it's white, it's lime green, it's domed, it's curved. And I think at this point, I may have been back outside of the ship. Uh, it's cold, uh, comfortable. There's a person at here at the target. And here it's under the T column. I knew there was a person there. And uh, uh, the person feels neutral about this whole thing and content. Um, and then four and a half is a special stage where we can sort of clear our mind. The people here seem to be inside the object, but when I look for them, they're somewhere else. And so I think at this point, I was talking about the owners. And the and owners I, are, what is that lower right corner 
that lower right corner says AOL break. I'm viewing ETs. <laughs> yeah. And that was on page six from six. the original 1986 notation. And then when you turn the page, we discovered this while we were doing our original interview. It doesn't go to page seven. It goes to page eight. Page seven, right after ETs, is missing from this document. Yeah. And uh, here again, you know, there's all kinds of speculation about how it became missing. But as a trained agent, I'm only going to say it was missing. (laughs) I have no idea how. I may have dropped it on the floor. It may have been taken by somebody. Uh, I have no idea. It's just missing. But that is especially curious that it comes right after you are seeing ETs. And now, can you get into the details about these ETs, at least as far as what we've got left here? Yeah. Yeah, there's no rule against an agent being curious. (laughs) It's just speculating is the thing. Um, Young, uh, in controlled remote viewing, you look at... uh, uh, time and age and thing as a measurement and so it goes into the dimensions column that's what the d stands for young and then over here in the um you you may see a dot or two going over to the things column young person now let me explain to you that i have gotten many many uh et targets ufo targets and all that no matter what species they are, I tend to see them as a person. And in fact, I've been uh, tasked with viewing a horse, and I see it as a person because there's a mind there, and that's what counts to me. Hmm. Um, okay, young person, green, thin, frail, uh, and hot. And so then I took a break, and the break was at 2.44, and I returned from the break at 2.51, um, redid my columns, and went over to uh, uh, the things column for my queue, and Ed said, uh, describe the place with the yellow light. So that's when I started curved, and uh, and like you said earlier, we keep moving down the page. An analyst has to know what comes first, what comes next, and so on. If you write two things on the same line, the analyst can't tell which one you got first. So we always keep moving down the page. Uh, I got that um, the place where the yellow light was curved, was domed, it was big, it was roomy. There was yellow uh, light, it was hot, it was moist, it was surrounded, and uh, the stuff surrounding it was solid. And um, that's when I got AOL break. This appears to be a an incubator of some kind. Now, I wasn't absolutely certain. So, AOL break, I think it's like a, uh, like an incubator. And now we're on your page eight. Uh, nine now. Nine, okay. Yeah. 
Oh, I'm I'm reading off the original. I'm sorry, I'm not reading off the. Sorry. No, it's nine. The, yeah. the declassified one. Yeah. Um, uh, Ed cued me with follow the people back to the source. I had no idea what the source was, but anyway, you know, I said okay. Um, so I cued myself with people. Went to dimension and I said, uh, "Is there's curves?" And um, AOL from the signal line, there is between absolute certainty and I think there may be, there is a, I think I'm pretty well certain about this, but I can't prove it. <laughs> and that's the A slash S column. And uh, in that, you also give your experiences. And uh, what I felt was a curving and there was some kind of strong physical pull. I mean, like a magnet that was pulling me towards something. Uh, another one, uh, I had strong pain. Um, and um, I had a strong pain feel over in the dimensions column. Uh, so here again, this place seemed roomy and big and all that. And I couldn't fit in it. Uh, so... And could the physical pain have been what you were picking up from the so-called ET persons? No, I think this was mine. Uh, um, I think this was my pain from being in this cramped, small little space that seemed like it was so big to me. Anyway, Ed cued me with, okay, describe the source. Um, the source is green, cool calm it's closed in it's round and uh, again AOL from the uh, signal line I felt like I was in the forest and woods and open area and uh, there were hard feelings there was resentment from somebody um, and I, I kind of feel in reliving this session later all these years later that the resentment and the hard feelings may have been coming from the inside of the ship. Um, Ed then said, okay, describe the people's living place. Um, and I got, okay, there's yellow light. It's yellow. It's bumpy. It's still, it's all run together. And, um, then Ed said, okay, describe the people, describe one of the persons, uh, one of the people. Skin feel, soft, frail, and here again, four and a half, waiting to leave. The person uh, who's waiting isn't certain why they even came. We have about two minutes left. Okay. Uh, 10, okay, green light, uh, home, destiny. Uh, let me go down on 10. Uh, how can we talk to them? Perception that uh, uh, he has been subjected to sound of such density for so long that touch is a better communication device than sound. Touch works. Destiny. Um, and when I touched, uh, I, I just got the impression that um, that touch for communication is communicating destiny. Uh, 
Um, okay, four and a half. Uh, very reddish desert uh, visual uh, someplace. Um, as though this was the location, but not what they wanted. AOL feeling that they had, um, they are waiting until conditions are right to leave this ship and escape the object. Uh, exit from the device leads nowhere, so they just wait, uh, waiting for something that never seems to come. And which, um, which might but, relate to Peniston's saying that he got the telepathic download of some intelligence in real trouble trying to survive and coming to this planet to harvest genetic material, perhaps the incubators are part of that, in order to use as Band-Aids to survive somewhere in the future. Lynn, when we come back in the next hour, let's go into your perceptions of both these intelligences that you may have, plus the others that have come up in remote viewing. Sounds good. That wraps up the first hour of tonight's interview with very special guest, controlled remote viewer, Lynn Buchanan. Stay right there as we start hour two of tonight's program, right after these messages from your choice. For UFO Talk Radio on the World Wide Web. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Taking paranormal talk radio to a whole new level. The Network.com. We begin hour two of tonight's interview with Lynn Buchanan right here on Phenomenon Radio with John Burroughs and Linda Moulton Howe. Now listen, folks, you can log on to earthfiles.com right now, www.earthfiles.com, and you can follow along with these documents right there, Remote Viewer Lynn Buchanan Encounters ETs, and click on that and you will be right there. All the documents are there that we're talking about here on the show. And with that, to start off hour two, here is Linda Moulton Howe. Thanks, Race. And Lynn, where we left off at the end of hour one was you were inside. You were both outside and inside looking down below and in the forest at what you had remote viewed as ETs. Can you give us now your impression of the type of ETs that would come out of your controlled remote viewing? Uh, actually, no, because uh, I didn't see anyone there, any any ETs there. I got that this was like a drone. It was remote, you know, it was remotely controlled or whatever. 
and uh, and as far as the person uh, when when Ed told me to go back to the source and describe the person I seem to have started describing the location instead that was the green and and the hot and so forth yeah the hot hot dry red place and all that and that seemingly uh, okay I'm changing from my remote viewer hat to my analyst hat here um, seemingly what they were looking for was a moist green hot place and um, going from the information in this one session <coughs> excuse me um, an analyst would say that this incubator machine was looking for the perfect place to open that incubator and let whatever was in there out and uh, and just couldn't find the perfect place. Um, and the red desert, the dryness could be on Earth or we've all wondered about Mars. Yeah, I don't think uh, the the red desert place was not on Earth. No. Uh-uh. And John, what about you and the hypnosis session you did in 1988? Well, that's interesting because Mars did come up. Now, are you sure that I know you said you per, you don't think it was on Earth? But what about the Southwest Desert area? Uh, that's where I live, and uh, it was different. <laughs> okay. All right. Can you can you elaborate a little bit more? on the, that red yellowish light and why it was dangerous or what was going on with that? Uh, I'm not sure it was dangerous. The, um, the reddish light was pretty much up front wherever I, I drew that, uh, those bumpy things. And, uh, once I got back into the, um, that corridor thing, I was reporting yellowish light back in there. Um, the yellowish light is where the incubator, that metal door in the incubator were at A. I would think so. And, uh, you know, if there's nobody actually on the ship, nobody driving it, I don't see why they would even need light. But, uh, but you know, that's starting as supposition. I just report what I got. And that sure does fit into a lot of the information about extraterrestrial technology being self-activating software from symbols that have some relationship with fields so that you could have a very intelligent, whether it was a time travel machine or something else, that could be totally independent and not need the, we'll call it the organic life form intelligence that made it to be there for it to function. Uh, very possible, yeah. And uh, the owner may just be monitoring what goes on. I don't. I have no idea. When uh, did you? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to ask you. Did you sense intelligence within whatever it was, or whether it was that was the intelligence, or there was something inside of it? it you know, it drew in or whatever. Was there any intelligence sensed at all? Um. I got there was an intelligence, yes, but that the uh, intelligence was not physically there. Now, back at the door number A, you know, that I labeled A, um, I definitely 
got that inside this place there was some young intelligent life um and and that cluster of information is probably what caused me to say it's an incubator of some kind now when you have remote viewed as we discussed and you have come we'll call it face to face meaning you are remote viewing but you do you can come quote unquote face to face with other intelligences can you describe the different types and feelings about them that you have encountered yourself uh that I've encountered myself yeah um there uh is a uh, there are four known uh ET installations on the earth and the one in um uh, uh northern australia uh i uh actually came into uh communication with some of them. i was um i was viewing that place and drawing diagrams this is when i was more advanced as a remote viewer drawing diagrams of the place floor plans and everything else and um at one point, uh, the ETs running the place stopped me and they said, we know you're here. Now, that's very unusual because when you're doing controlled remote viewing, you don't get caught. But somehow they knew that I was there and uh, and they said, it's all right and going with what you're doing, but we want you to know that we know you're here. And very friendly, in fact. And what was their intent? Why were they there in Australia? Uh, The Australia um, installation is sort of the uh, uh, incoming airport, (laughs) you might say, um, that uh, when they come in, they come to the earth, they report there. And then from there, they go out uh, to around the earth or wherever. Um, In fact, uh, one time uh, after some of these viewings of that place, um, Skip Atwater called one of the um, uh, intel establishments in northern uh, Australia and asked if there was anything going on. And the guy said, not around here, mate. You know, he said this is as boring a place as could be. If it weren't for all those UFOs, we'd have nothing to look at. <laughs> well, in Lynn, is that Mount? Is it Zeal or Zile? It's Mount uh, Z E I L in Australia, yeah. and this was where Pat Price did yeah. the remote viewing that you and Mel Riley and uh, Jim Mars wrote about in Sci Spies where uh, Pat Price had came up with these four, and this one in Mount Zeal, he, he had written that it was like a rest and recreation area, and it was either inside or underneath this big mountain. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And did you yeah. experience yourself going in a mountain, underneath the mountain, and what what types did you see? What did they look like? No, they gave me the coordinates, and all of a sudden, I was standing there on the on the floor of the uh, of the airport, you might say, 
and uh, watching the different ETs and, and humans or humanoids uh, just walking around and milling around and um, a ship would come in, land in the cradle that they had. The crew would sort of get off on the floor below and the passengers would get off on that floor. Um, and uh, and it was, um, I was just reporting what I saw. But when I got the coordinates, the coordinates somewhere in in a document somewhere stood for the inside of that uh, establishment. Um, and so uh, I just, poof, I was right there. And who were you seeing? In other words, can you give physical descriptions of the different type of extraterrestrials that are coming and going uh, in this, we'll call it Mount Zeal Airport? Yeah, there were a lot of grays. And uh, one thing that uh, everybody else thought was strange uh i this isn't my field and so i really didn't know um was that there was a female looking one with the child in tow and grays and uh, uh there were grays there were tall ones uh many of the workers there looked absolutely like humans to me i they may not have been but they looked indistinguishable from humans to me. Hybrids? I have no idea. They looked like humans. <laughs> I, I report what I get. Yeah. Did you ever see any of the standing up reptilians, lizards, that Pat Price uh, described, I believe, uh, in one of his encounters as he, when I remote viewing encounters, um, it said in Psy Spies that the Psy Spies had also come across several species of non-humans. Most of the yeah. remote viewers talked about the small greys, but I think the lizards were also mentioned. And I wondered, have you seen standing up alligators or lizards? Uh, in Tanganyika, in, their, in that uh, installation, uh, they were, which is basically a repair space, you know, uh, maintenance and repair. I found a lot of them working on the uh, on the UFOs. Oh, and in Zimbabwe, uh, I know in the Pat Price remote viewing, uh, Zimbabwe also came up. And remember when Doctor Yeah, Zimbabwe. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And it, remember John Mack, the psychiatrist at Harvard University. He was the one. I don't who, know the name. So. Yeah, he went there in uh, in 1994. It was after 62 school children saw a round silver craft ringed in red lights landed in the Ruwa schoolyard there in Zimbabwe, and students sketched what they had seen, which included uh, little figures uh, that looked either dark or were very slim, and that the children. Yeah, in Zimbabwe, very uh, near where Pat Price remote viewed this site, and the children, quote, receive the same telepathic message from the beings to take care of the planet or civilization will be doomed, close quote. Have okay. you run into that kind of information? Uh, no, I haven't. And um, mainly because... Um uh, mental access is a more advanced form of CRV, and uh, 
I rarely ever, I think only on one or two occasions, mentally accessed an ET. And when you did, did you feel an intent that was positive or negative? Uh, sort of neutral, uh, kind of surprised at me being there. Um, but uh, po- I would say positive more than negative, yeah. And yet we talked about the whole issue of what types and what agendas. Could you explain to our Phenomenon Radio audience everything that you have both experienced and learned about the issue of uh, friendlies, unfriendly, psychic, unpsychic, that whole issue that you have dealt yeah. with? Um, very quickly after I got out of, uh, after I retired from service, I was still working for the DIA as a civilian. Uh, I was asked to do a paper uh, on the, um, on an assessment of ET psychic ability. Now, this is, you really have to pay attention here because uh, um, this gets confusing. I found that there are ETs who are unfriendly to us, all different types, okay? We have many enemies. (laughs) They also, there was another group of them that was friendly to us. Now, in each of these groups, you know, we have many friends as well. And each of these groups are all different kinds, all different species. Uh, within each group, friendly and unfriendly, there are those who are very psychic and those who are not very psychic at all, if at all. And so I was able in this paper to split it into friendly psychics, friendly unpsychic, uh, enemy psychic ability and enemy uh, non-psychic and uh, they they gave me reports that never made it into the blue book if you know what that is Um, and uh, I went through these reports and uh, just analyzed 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 and uh, found out basically that the friendly non-psychic ones are here for trade mainly for trade uh, the unfriendly non-psychic ones are sort of afraid of us and they don't come here except maybe by accident or crash or something like that. The friendly psychic ones uh, come here for trade, but also they're very interested in developing our psychic ability. Um, and the unfriendly psychic ones uh, are very interested in us dying off to the last single person. Uh, they want us dead. And um, I couldn't figure out the motivation of those two. Why do the friendly ones want to develop us and why the other ones want us dead? There was one incident that took place, and I won't go into it because it's one that never made it into the blue book. But in um, this oh, incident... Tell, tell us details about something that hasn't been published, Lynn. <laughs> okay. In this incident... Um, these guys are standing by a lakeside and they see this UFO coming toward them. And, uh, uh, as it gets over them, all of a sudden 
they can't move. They can't, you know, they can't really think for themselves. They can't move. They're just experiencing it like puppets and uh, they get abducted. Um, and so all of a sudden it dawned on me. And now this is my analysis. Okay. It dawned on me that the ETs who are psychic are much stronger in their psychic ability than humans are. But they don't have any range. They have to be right over you before they can control you. And one of the things we know about human psychics is that we can see across the universe in space and time just as well as we can see across the room with our eyes. And so, um, and so it dawned on me that if and when we get into space, if we have increased psychic ability, humans will be a powerful, powerful force in the universe. And the friendly ones want to be on our side. <laughs> you know, they want to develop that because they want to be on our side of the very powerful force in the universe. And that's exactly why the unfriendly ones want us just wiped off the face of the earth. And what do you think those unfriendly ones, psychic or not, want? In other words, do they want this planet that we're on? No, they just uh, they just don't want us coming out into the uh, into their space with uh, strong psychic power and unlimited range. Can you share anything from uh, Mel Riley, Paul Smith, Joe McMonagall? Uh, all of you knew each other and work with each other in that DIA program. Right. What, uh -huh. what is a, a broader general discussion among all of you about the non-humans that you have encountered and this whole question of expanding beyond into insights about types and agendas and these four locations uh, that Pat Price seemed to have remote viewed and they seem perhaps to be actually real on this planet now underground? You know, this comes to a uh, an explanation of a um, highly classified unit, especially ours. We were never allowed to share information. And in fact, it was after we got out of service that Joe and Paul and Mel and myself and and different people, you know, different viewers in the unit have become better friends. Uh, we were never allowed to share our findings or even talk about them during lunch or anything like that because it would pollute the other viewers. And uh, the controlled remote viewers are like mushrooms, you know, they're kept in the dark and, you know, the rest of it. Uh, um, so in the unit itself, I have no idea what or whether any of the remote viewers did these sessions. I'm assuming that they did. And uh, talking to Mel afterwards, he goes into sessions that he did. Um, and uh, I'm not sure he, he ever got feedback on what they were or what incident they were or whatever. Um, but he encountered ETs. Uh, he said he did, yeah. Uh -huh. And did he say anything about types and agendas? I don't believe he ever has. Uh, 
He just uh, said that he had ET targets. Yeah. Um, we we really haven't discussed it. We, um, you know, we're remote viewers, and the remote viewing, um, we were uh, doing military targets. We were doing government targets, uh, scientific uh, research and development in other countries. Uh, we were only spying on other countries. Uh, collecting intelligence on um, on other countries. We were never allowed to collect intelligence on anyone in the States. Um, but uh, uh, even today, I have no idea what specific targets um, the other viewers um, did. I mean, we were kept in the dark. But in Jim uh, Mars, I Spies, he talks about all of you at some point being asked about tracking the ET intelligence here back to its source. Yeah. And, and, I, and it was Mel Riley who he went to go take a look. And uh, he ended up saying what they could only describe as, quote, intergalactic federation headquarters, close quote, he ended up with a very bizarre experience. He ended up in a very mountainous area with a large plateau and a huge lake that he equated as something similar to Lake Titicaca in Peru. And I wonder, have you or anybody had a remote viewing session where you would say that Lake Titicaca and all that that has represented for centuries could be something related to the source hub of non-human uh, interactions here on this planet? Uh, the only ones that I would say was is Mount Zeal. In Australia? As the hub. Now, there were there were three others. One was the repair site, uh, one was a communication site, and one was um, up in the Pyrenees. Uh, I forget what they were doing up there. Uh, yeah, it was 267 miles from the Atlantic Ocean's Bay of Biscay to the Mediterranean Sea's Cap de Cruz. And John should jump in here because these latitude longitudes that Penniston described with various sites around the world, one of them is the Apollo doorway uh, in uh, the island. Uh, jump in here, John, because it's oh, really? very, That's very interesting. It's uh, it actually it's the Temple of Apollo, and it sits right next to Patmos. In the oh. Med Mediterranean. Yes. And the this Pyrenees one, isn't far from there. Uh, I, I think it is. It's uh, northern Spain. Well, it's in that general area from the Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not in, in it's not in walking distance. Yeah, um, yeah, but it's uh, it's up in the mountains. Um, the four places that Pat Price did that then we were tasked with um, are all in in mountainous areas. And John, can you talk with uh, uh, Lynn about your? Uh, we'll call it the hypnosis of 1988, what it was that you got as a hit about Mars in relationship to Bentwaters? 
Sure. Uh, we'll do a break, though, and when we come back, we can go into that. And also, Lynn, I'd like to go into the fact that you did more than one remote view on Rendlesham and the reasoning behind it and then your overall analysis of all of them together. For the latest in science, the environment, and real X-Files, visit the award-winning website earthfiles.com with over 2,000 in-depth reports that go beyond the 6 o'clock news. That's earthfiles.com. We'll be right back for the final segment of tonight's program with controlled remote viewer Lynn Buchanan on the best choice of alternative talk radio on the planet. Stay with us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter and be sure to check out the show pages to get all the deets on your favorite shows. Onxnetwork.com. Welcome back to Phenomenon Radio for the final segment of tonight's program with special guest Lynn Buchanan. Here's John Burroughs. Thanks, Reese. Hey, Lynn, before we go into the Mars, you know, stuff that we were talking about right before the break and some of the things that has happened to you with that, I'd like to go back to the Rendlesham remote view for a minute. Um, you Early on, you said it was a practice remote view. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to elaborate what practice is as quickly as you can. Um, the fact that it ended up being classified because it was declassified by the CIA, which is not normal. Was that remote view analyzed afterwards and that you also had more remote views done after that? So can you go into that a little bit, please? Uh, generally, uh, on the practice targets, the um, they came out of National Geographic and things like that, but Ed Dames was slipping in the ET targets on this. Um, generally, they would be analyzed for your structure, your your remote viewing structure uh, to see if you were in structure and doing everything right. Uh, the content usually wasn't. Now, there's that question about the missing page, uh, and I can't answer that. So, uh, but yeah, they were looked at afterwards uh, and analyzed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do Do you have any idea what they what what the, what the, how, when they analyzed it, what was said about them? No, because they never told us. They never told you at all. Okay. We were, now, we were absolutely kept in the dark about just about everything. Okay, that makes sense. Now, you did more. Who was Ed Dames the one that had you do every more every other one that you did? Ed was the only one who was bringing in ET targets, yeah. Now, uh, at other times, um, like I say, we would do practice targets out of National Geographic and uh, you know, things, National Geographic has things from all over the world. And, uh, and so we would, uh, they'd give us some coordinates, you know, some random number coordinates, and we would describe what was in the envelope in the article from the National Geographic and draw pictures of the, of the place and all that. Okay. Now the practice ones you did following the first one, were you aware of it being Rendlesham at that point, or were you just given coordinates again and then you went through the whole process over and uh, over? Just, just given uh, coordinates again and went through the whole process. You know, each time you do a single target site, you get something different. You get a different view of it. Um, and uh, one of the things is the new view that you have of it, does that uh, coordinate with the previous time you did it and that's one of the things they analyze to see if you're actually viewing or if it's your imagination or something like that 
But um, uh, after each one, it was B-type feedback, which meant uh, they would hand me the magazine article that talked about the Rendlesham, uh, the Bentwater, whatever it was. And uh, uh, so that's how I knew at the end of a session, after I had written my summary and everything else, that's how I knew that I'd gotten the Bentwater thing again. Okay. And I, I did read that part, the portion of your first remote view, and what was interesting was what you came up with really didn't totally match the article that you referenced afterwards because that was basically the early stuff that Larry Fawcett was working on and yeah. had very little to do with you know the other people that came out later. Okay, I know you said you've done analyzations before. Now, it's after the fact. You know, you're not going to remote view the site again that I'm aware yeah. of. Uh-huh. Yeah. Based on the first one you did and all the other ones, what is your inter- as if you were to ask be asked to analyze this, how would you analyze it step by step? Take us through what they would do and what the conclusion would be based on your remote views. Okay, uh, this first one, um, if I were an analyst, I would say that this first one was looking for the ideal place to open up and sort of start little ETs running around on the planet here uh, and make a new home for themselves. Um, But um, I know one of the following one, um, uh, I think it was Ed who was my monitor on that one. Um, He was interested in that light that was under it. And I kept, he kept saying, describe the light. And I said, okay, it's energy describe the energy, describe the energy and, and all that. Um, Ed, and actually me too, uh, very interested in how these things fly. <laughs> uh, you know, I I would love to abduct an alien just to get his ship, take his ship away from him. Because <laughs> uh, uh, both Ed and I became very interested in the power source for these things and uh, I know that the Rendlesham thing, um, on a later session, I remember that uh, Ed was uh, uh, very focused on the power, the the light that was under the thing and emanating from it, um, and also the uh, energy that came from the raised uh, raised letters and all. So you definitely saw rays, like, would you call them letters, glyphs, or what? Because you did talk about that off the air, and you never really did explain it. Yeah. What exactly did you see there? Uh, Okay, Um, we did talk about it off the air. Uh, A beginning remote viewer, if you give them something in a foreign language with a foreign alphabet, they'll tell you what it says uh, in English. Um, An advanced one will reproduce the glyphs and the characters and all that, but may not be able to tell you what it says. Uh, so, you know, there's a purpose for using brand new viewers and older viewers. But um, what I got when I re- touched those glyphs was that this was sort of the equivalent of um, of us putting USA on the side of any rocket we spend in, send into space. 
but that it also had the ability to communicate through touch. And uh, I know on one of the other sessions, when I was doing the energy and the uh, power structure, that was a very focused thing. On that one, when I when I got it, I recognized immediately what it said. You know, uh, it said it was just where it was from. Where was it from? I have no idea. Oh, uh, it was. I got that it was the equivalent of that glyph. I didn't get uh, the reading of it. I just got the English interpretation. Oh, this is the label. You know, this is a company logo <laughs> or a country logo. Okay. Do you, now when you when when you looked at it, is it, do you do you remember how many were there? Was there just one? Was there several? No, I I saw a string of them going going around the side, and uh, uh, at one point I got that they were indented rather than raised. But then later I got raised ones as well. Okay, and the I I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did I hear you say that through those glyphs there would be some kind of communications? Yes. Uh huh. And uh, um, and. And that one, that's where I touched them, and I realized, oh, this is this is a logo, you know, like U.S. on the side of ours. Okay. All right. So you you got that much of it. Now, can you analyze it further? If you were looking, what you remember from your other reports in this one, what what would be the final analysis you would make based off the first one all the way through the ones that you can remember if you had to write a report like you said you did once before yeah how uh -huh. would you interpret it what would it be where was it from and everything else uh i because of another session i did which uh which was not the rendlesham thing i would say that there was a strong strong possibility that it was from Mars. Okay. Um, now that's AOL from Mars. That's not definite. I know it's from Mars. <laughs> okay. A strong possibility. Yeah. And what was it doing here? Looking for a place. Looking for a place to live. Okay. Now the light source that you were saying underneath it. What did that look like to you? What was the coloring of it? What I was getting was a bright sort of bluish and uh, whitish bluish um, now one of the things about controlled remote viewing is if it's nuclear we almost always see it as green if it's uh, radiant energy like that we almost always see it as bluish white now uh, I, I remember um, Ed saying color, and that's when I saw a bluish white uh, it, as sorry, the actual color, as the actual color, rather than the generic color of seeing radiant energy as as blue. Okay, and that would be the power source that it, how it, it it was able to travel. Is that what you interpreted it as, or how did how go a step further with that? This is the thing in that session. Uh, he said, move to the power source, and I couldn't find one. Um, basically, what I found was in that red lit area, there was what seemed like a little box. 
and I never could get into the box. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ed, as I remember, Ed said, you know, just move into the box and describe, and I couldn't do it. It was, uh, it was as though there was no way to do it. Okay. Now, you, you did say there was an intelligence in there. Did you think it was, what type of intelligence was it from? Where was it from? I don't know where it was from. Uh, I just know that it was not physically there, and yet the intelligence was there. Uh, okay. the, the owner or the driver or, or whatever seemed to be just sort of monitoring the place and actually seemed quite bored and unconcerned, like, oh, great, here's another one that failed, you know. Now, at any point in any of the remote views, did you see any outside intelligence? Like it would be something like a man or individuals or anything like that? Or was there any kind of interaction with whatever this was with something else? Uh, so people standing around in the forest uh, outside the thing. Uh, other than that, uh, when, as I remember, when I described that, Ed was totally unconcerned with that and cued me back into the ship. Okay. And there, was there any point where you felt like whatever was there was trying to communicate with the people or vice versa? Um, only in this first session. Uh, in a later session, I touched it and I got that it was a logo of some kind. In this first session, I got that whatever was driving or owning this ship had been subjected to this noise for so long that touch was a better way of communicating and that if you touched the ship it would communicate with you okay all right now let's go to the point of origin you felt the point of origin wherever it came from could be mars can you elaborate on why could be mars um Early in a, uh, another practice session, and this was uh, not from Ed, um, in another practice session, uh, I was given the uh, Sedona region of Mars. Now, I didn't know that. Um, and uh, I was given a movement through time, and I wound up in this uh, underground place and there were these uh, beings that were sort of milling around, and yet they had vestigial arms and legs. Uh, so it was more like they were just crawling around and all. And uh, uh, on it, I noticed that there were some stairs going up and out of this underground place. So when I reported that, my monitor said, okay, go up the stairs and see, you know, and describe what's up there. I found myself in a corridor that had sand all over the floor, and um, and there was an opening at the far end of the corridor, and so I walked to the corridor, and I looked out, and I was up very high. There was a slanted wall to the outside of the building that I was in, but it was very flat it wasn't mountainous slanted it was a slanted building type thing and I looked out and I saw um, that it was daylight it was extremely cold Um, I could feel the cold wind on my face 
the sun was out and yet it was very very dim and uh, and I was looking out at these these things uh, sort of pointed things off in the distance um, it was I guess about two years later that we were at uh, SRI and I saw the first picture I had ever seen of the uh, Sedona region and um, it was extremely high res <laughs> you know uh, I mean they can read your license plate from 200 miles up through the atmosphere Lynn, not... do you mean Sidonia or Sedona, Arizona? Sidonia, uh, is that the name of it? Sidonia on Mars. Oh, on Mars, yeah, the yeah. place on Mars. Uh, like I say, that's that's not my field. Um, and so, um, so anyway, uh, it was extremely high resolution, and I got to looking very up close, and right on one of these slanted areas, there was a little opening. And uh, to this day, you know, I I kind of jokingly say, Mars, been there, done that, didn't get the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, but remembering what I had seen from that opening, I looked on this overhead uh, satellite picture, and things were right exactly where I'd seen them. What are the points? Uh, just the tops of other places. Uh, not not sharp pointed, you know, but uh, just sort of not rounded, but sort of pointed up. So now we're at Mars. Now, right before we came back on, you talked about a review that you did and it actually injured you. Do you, do you mind going into that a little bit? Oh, that was a... Uh, that was a totally different operational target, and uh, I was following a person in another government, and uh, I really can't talk all that much about that. Okay. All right, so we'll go back to Mars again. What's interesting, and Linda brought it up before we went on the break, was within my hypnosis, Mars does come up. Um, it. It's it's tough to talk about because at the time it actually happened in '88. It was like back then everybody made fun of little green men and Martians oh, yeah. and, and yeah. everything else. But the people that were doing it were very interested in Mars. And what they were really interested, in, and I can't explain how I did this, but I was able to tell them how 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 long I was able to compute when I was under how long it would take to get from Mars to Earth. Oh, and, and they were really into this Mars thing. And at the time, like I said, in 88, Mars was just was a, a joke for UFOs. But oh, yeah. now it really appears that Mars is something that could have something to do with all of this. Is right. that how you would take it? I would not at all be surprised. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, you know, if somebody were to prove that, it would be no surprise at all to me. Okay. Now... The energy source that you guys were concerned about, what, 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 you said you and Ed were both interested in that. Was that having to do with being able to do travel in a different type of way? And if it is, what did you learn from all of this? Uh, basically, um, from all of that, I got that there is an energy source. And uh, I have done studies later. Uh, the um, Utsuro Bune, 
uh, in northern Japan where a saucer landed and a woman got out with a box and carried it around and wouldn't let anybody touch it. And Utsurabune means empty ship. And uh, the locals went all through the ship and everything and never found a motor or anything like that. Um, and uh, Ed Leedskalnen, um, uh lifted, you know, of Coral Castle. He had a box and he was able to lift 10 and 20 ton pieces of, of uh, coral uh, and load them personally onto a truck. And, uh, you know, how did he do that? But he had that box that's never been found since he died. And uh, there are other instances where humongous rocks uh, and all... Um, in ancient times, Aztec times, and all, and uh, there seems to be this sort of box, and I want to know what's in the box, because <laughs> I want to build one, you know. And right. that's what you encountered in the black uh, craft, right? Yeah, it was in that red lit area. Uh, now, this was, uh, once again, I didn't know I was doing the... Uh, the Bentwater thing, but uh, uh, in this later session, there was that black craft. I went inside, there was the red light, and down under some stuff was this box. And Ed said, find out what's in the box, and I couldn't. Uh, so you felt you were blocked? I didn't feel like I was blocked. I felt like I was just not capable of getting into the box. Um, it wasn't seemingly an outside source blocking me. It just, for some reason, I couldn't get into the box. Okay. Now, I've got, I've got another interesting question that has to do with communications. Yeah. And all the remote views you did, including Rendlesham, at any point have you been able to do communicate and if you have how did you communicate uh, I had a, an abduction experience about 25 years before I was in the unit and uh, didn't know about it until I got into the unit and an incident happened uh, that brought it all up to the surface but um, yes uh, I have at that time I met uh, gray face to face and uh, communicated and and so forth. Also, after getting out of service, and and before I got to the unit, both um, I had done some black ops work for different uh, black black ops units, and um, have had the experience of seeing ETs physically, and I'm choosing my words very carefully here, okay? Uh, um, have had the opportunity of seeing ETs physically, not in remote viewing, but physically being there um, and um, um, in those black ops areas like that, you see something like that, you turn the other way because believe me, in those areas like that, you don't want to know anything that you don't want to know <laughs> because, uh, you know, uh, you but, when, 
Lynn, you you're, you're, Lynn, you're implying that we have black ops humans working with extraterrestrials on this planet. No, I mean, I'm saying that I have seen extraterrestrials working with humans in black op areas. In human black op areas. Right, but okay. doesn't that imply they might... Oh, you you don't mean that they, they might either be working together or might not be working together? I would say they're working together if they're right there working together. Uh, but um, it, the, uh, the ones that I saw at Mount Zeal, I saw many people there that looked exactly like humans, and I, I just called them humans. So I would suppose, I would not be surprised to find out that there are humans working with the ETs and there are ETs working with the humans. And I've got a question for you. Okay. I, I, you may not realize it. How do they communicate? Is it verbally or telepathically? I don't know. The um, the uh, abduction experience I had, I was so focused on this guy's hands, the Gray's hands, um, that I know that we talked at great length. In fact, uh, when we got to the place where the ship was going, uh, he pulled me out of line with all the other abductees, and he said, you don't want to go where they're going. And we sat on a hillside, and we talked at great length. And um, people have asked me, did you talk mentally or physically? And I cannot remember. Uh, I, I have tried to remember, and I can't remember. Okay. you. What do you... Okay, based on the analysis you've done over the years, what what would you say is the the probability of how they they could try to communicate with us? Uh, from another experience I had that I cannot talk about on this one, um, their language. They needed a linguist. Uh, their language seems to be like half physical, half mental, and you can't. You can't understand them if you can only talk in one of those ways. You have to be able to mix the two together. So it seems to be uh, their language seems to be part telepathic, part vocal. Okay. Now, the one other question, because we're running out of time. Yeah. Do you think it's more physical or more energy on what we're dealing with? And are they able to manipulate how we see them? I would imagine they are, yeah, because, uh, oh, yeah, definitely. Which? Uh, uh, Which, That, that uh, they can manipulate what we, uh, what we perceive of them, because uh, at close range, they have strong, strong, strong psychic ability, if they're the kind that have the psychic ability. And on that note, Lynn, I want to take the time to thank you so much for coming on and analyzing um, the incident and what your remote view that you did. And um, you said that you were going to look for some more stuff. If you do come up with that, I'd love to hear more about it. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like I say, this is not my field. And so I may be the first, quote, expert you've had on that keeps saying, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank okay. you so much, Lynn. And uh, Race, take us forward in time to next week. Thank you so much, Lynn. Next week on Phenomenon Radio, the staff has its first week off since starting the show and backed by popular demand. 
The Adrian Bestenza interview will fill next week's show. For John Burroughs, Linda Moulton Howe, and Lynn Buchanan, I want to thank all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.